this morning as we uh, continue our study of the book of Hebrews, we come to the eighth chapter, which is all about Christ's new covenant being superior to the old covenant. Now, why did the writer of the book feel it necessary or important uh, to address this issue? Well, because he was writing to Hebrew Christians who for many years had lived under the Old Covenant. They had practiced all of the ceremonies, the rituals, the sacrifices before coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. They were struggling with whether or not they still had obligations to the old system. And as we've discussed many times before, due to persecution, they were even tempted to retreat from Christ and go back to their old religious practices. So the writer in this chapter, he holds up Christ and the salvation he provides as being superior, as being better than the old covenant, in order to show the sheer foolishness of abandoning the greater for the lesser. The sheer foolishness of turning away from the supreme prize of Christ for something that has become absolute uh, or obsolete and useless. So with that, uh, I hope you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, as you follow in your sermon notes, uh, we want to discover four reasons uh, why the new covenant is so much superior uh, to the old covenant. And please understand, there is great benefit for us today. Because in this truth, we will discover in a greater way not only the magnificence of Christ, but the salvation that we have received in Christ. So few believers really understand all that has been given to them when they were converted to Christ, and therefore they fail to appropriate that. So this is a wonderful message to help us understand all that is ours in Christ and to learn to appropriate it. Now look at the first reason why the new covenant is superior to the old. It's because the new covenant is established by a superior high priest. And, of course, that high priest is Jesus. Uh, Look at the very first two verses of Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Now, these first two verses basically summarize what we already discovered in the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews about the superiority of the Christ priesthood over the Old Testament priesthood. And uh, the summary is there in your notes. We first see that His work is what? Finished. The work of Christ as our high priest is finished. It says, we have such a high priest who, notice, who has taken his seat. The fact that Jesus is seated indicates 
that his work of salvation was completed when he offered himself up as a sacrifice for the penalty of man's sin. What did Jesus say on the cross right before he died? It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished, referring to the work of salvation that he had provided for man. Now, this is in stark contrast to the Old Testament priest who had to daily offer sacrifices. Their work was never finished, and that's why when you look at the furniture in the Old Testament tabernacle, there were no chairs because they never had an opportunity to be seated and to rest. Each repeated sacrifice was a reminder that none of their sacrifices were adequate to provide a finished salvation. The blood of animals could never wash away man's sin and guilt. It could only cover sin up until Jesus would come. But now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has offered himself on the cross for payment for our sins, there is no more need for any sacrifice. There is no need for anything else to be done because all has been done in Christ. All that's left to do is what? Believe in Jesus, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And you know, folks, there's one word that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world without exception. Although every religion is different, the one common denominator in every religion in the world except Christianity, is the word do. Do this or don't do this, and it's through doing that you are in favor with God and you find His blessing. In Christianity, the word is not do, it's what? Done. All has been done. All has been accomplished in Christ, and we put our trust in His finished work. But not only is his work finished, he is a superior high priest because his authority is absolute. His authority is absolute. Notice it says he's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Remember what we discovered last Sunday from chapter 7? Jesus is a royal priest. He is both king and priest, something which was absolutely unheard of in the Old Testament. Uh, A king could never enter the realm of a priest, and the priest could never enter the realm of a king. But in Jesus, we have both king and priest. Our great and faithful high priest sits on a throne, of absolute authority. Why? To ensure that all things work together for the good, for the spiritual development of His people. But also remember, that throne of absolute authority is also a throne of grace. A throne of grace where we find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And you know, folks, It's this right here that enables me to keep going as a minister with joy, with delight. You know, one of the challenges of being in the ministry is you're constantly around suffering and pain. 
you're constantly being confronted with hurting people. And that hurt can come from a lot of different directions. A lot of times it's self-inflicted wounds. Many times we become hurt uh, by the wrong and injustices of others. Sometimes it's just the hurt and pain from living in a fallen world where there is disease, where there is adversity, where there is difficulty and hurt. But what a joy. No matter what that person is going through, for me to be able, with sincerity, to look into their eyes with absolute confidence and tell them that Jesus is still on the throne. And that nothing can touch their lives that He cannot turn for their good, even their self-inflicted wounds, when they submit, when they surrender to Him at His throne of authority. And as they submit to Him, to His authority, then they also discover what? That beautiful throne of grace. They receive that grace. They receive the mercy that's needed to persevere, to endure, to see God accomplish His purposes in and through them, even in the midst of that suffering, how He uses that suffering to develop the very life of Christ in them, to be displayed through them, uh, to provide an open door to minister to others. So, Jesus' high priest is superior because it's a finished work, His Authority is absolute, but then notice the third thing. His ministry is in the true heavenly tabernacle. His ministry is in the true heavenly tabernacle. Uh, It reads, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Notice the word true, which describes the the heavenly tabernacle uh, where Jesus ministers. The word true when you think about it, it can be used in two different ways. It can mean the opposite of what is false, or it can mean the genuine article, the real deal, as opposed to a copy. And that is the way the word is used here. The Old Testament tabernacle was a mere copy of the true tabernacle that existed in heaven. And not a single Old Testament priest could claim, like Jesus could, that he, what, had ministered in the true heavenly tabernacle. And this takes us right to our next point. Look at the second reason the new covenant is so much superior to the old covenant. The new covenant is the reality, while the old covenant is merely its representation. The new covenant is the reality, while the Old Covenant is merely its representation. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says, For every high priest, referring to the Old Testament priest, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest, Jesus, also have something to offer. And, of course, we know he did. He offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Notice verse 5, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on 
the mountain. Now, let me just pause right here. This provides me an opportunity to make a very important point about the Old Covenant and the value of the Old Covenant and the fact that it, it was a copy, it was a representation. See, it's very easy with all this talk about the New Covenant being so superior that we come to the conclusion that there was no value in the Old Covenant. It was a bad thing. Well, no, that's not true at all. Uh, the Old Covenant was established by God, just like the New Covenant has been established by God. The purpose of the Old Covenant was to prepare people for Christ's coming, to prepare them for the establishment of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant provided the law, which revealed the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, which also exposed man as a what? Sinner, thus demonstrating man's need for a Savior. The Old Covenant, with all of its sacrifices, ceremonies, and rituals, every one of those ceremonies, every one of those rituals, every one of those... was what? It was a picture. It was a picture of Jesus. It was a picture of the salvation He would provide when He would come. And therefore, all of those sacrifices, rituals, and ceremonies provided hope in the coming Messiah. It created expectations in His coming. So the main point is this. If the Old Covenant, if the purpose of the Old Covenant was to point people to Jesus, and the New Covenant that He would inaugurate, well, isn't it pretty obvious that when Jesus arrives, you would drop the old and embrace the new? And that's the simple point of basically this entire chapter. Look at the next statement in your notes. It sort of summarizes this. Just as a shadow is cast by a real substance, the old covenant was a mere shadow of Jesus and the true tabernacle in heaven. So why cling to the shadow when you possess the real thing? You know, you know just uh, an illustration of this... Um, we had a couple of military families uh, over to our house for a supper uh, this past Tuesday night. And uh, I was asking uh, one of the wives, uh, how's military life been? And, and she said, I've really enjoyed military life, but the deployments have been difficult. And, uh, and you know, we have a, a good representation of military in this church, and we love you. And uh, we deeply appreciate you and uh, pray continually uh, for you, uh, and we know the deployments are difficult. And you know, I've and and you know, for years, Kathy and I have extended an open invitation uh, to any wives and their children whose husbands are deployed to to join us each week for supper. And so we've gotten close uh, to many of you. And it's interesting during those times of employment, you know, as they're apart, uh, they exchange what uh, pictures of one another in the family. Uh, they're able to use Skype with the Internet. But then finally that day comes uh, that the soldier returns. And the simple point I'm making, wouldn't it be pretty silly if he returned, but the wife kept clinging to the pictures, kept clinging to the letters, and ignored the husband who had returned? And, and here, that's the point here. You know, the, the old covenant, it was just, it was just a picture it was just a shadow 
anticipating the coming of Christ. But now that he's come, you put away the pictures, you leave the shadows, the copies, and you embrace the real thing, and you enjoy the real thing. Just like that wife will embrace and enjoy the return of her husband. Look at the third reason the new covenant is so much superior to the old covenant. The new covenant is faultless in contrast to the old covenant, which was faulty. The new covenant is faultless in contrast to the old covenant, which was faulty. Look at verses 6 through 9. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, referring to that old covenant, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Now, let me just make mention of one thing. Notice, this is a quote of Jeremiah chapter 31. And matter of fact, uh, verses 10 through 13, as we proceed, also a quote of Jeremiah 31, where you find a statement of the new covenant that was initially given to the nation of Israel. And the new covenant will ultimately be fulfilled in the nation of Israel. But through Christ, you and I have become recipients of the blessings of the new covenant. And this is very, very obvious. We see this when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. He acknowledged that it represented what? The new covenant that was cut in His blood. And then Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 11 and says every time we celebrate the, new, uh, the Lord's Supper, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating all the benefits that have been given ours uh, through uh, the new covenant. But the main point is this. Look at that next statement in your notes. The old covenant was not sinful. We've already seen that. It was good. It had its value. It revealed God's righteousness to man. But it was faulty in the sense that it could not produce God's righteousness in man's heart. There was the fault in the old covenant. It could tell you what God expected. It could point you to Jesus. It could point you to the new covenant but it had no power to produce righteousness in man's heart. And that's where the old covenant fell short. The old covenant, again, was powerless to change the human heart. The the new covenant, on the other hand, look at the next statement in your notes. The new covenant is faultless because it not only reveals God's righteousness to man, but also puts into man what God requires out of man. Now, folks, in essence, that is the beauty of the new covenant. The beauty of the new covenant, the promise that God, the guarantee that God gives through Christ, is that everything I expect from you, I've put in you. And therefore, you lack nothing. You have all things, as Peter says, that pertains unto life and godliness. As Paul said, you have all adequacy in Christ through the ministry of the new covenant in the Holy Spirit to walk in a new way 
to walk in obedience. And this takes us right to the fourth reason that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. It's superior because it's founded on better promises. And there are four fundamental promises or guarantees that Christ makes in the new covenant. And folks, uh, an easy way to look at the new covenant, and I've, I've often shared this when we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, uh, just view it as the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, which He wrote in His shed blood. In other words, Jesus says, this is what I bequeath to those who put their faith in me. This is the rightful inheritance of every child of God. These are the things that I guarantee I will do in and through them. So let's read these verses together uh, that contain these four wonderful promises of the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and as we've already seen, uh, we are the beneficiaries today of that uh, through the work of Christ. Uh, After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first, referring to the old covenant, obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So look with me quickly at the four fundamental promises of the new covenant. First, the new covenant provides the internal motivation and power to obey God. The new covenant provides the internal motivation and power to obey God. Listen to the first promise, which is in the very middle of verse 10. He says, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. In other words, what was the problem with the old covenant? The Old Covenant was written in tablets of stone. It was external to man. It provided no power. It provided no motivation. It provided no energy. Again, it pointed in the right direction, but it couldn't give you the power to walk in that direction. Jesus comes with the New Covenant, and He says, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to provide in you not only the motivation, but the empowerment that you need to walk in my statutes. They're no longer going to be external statutes, but I'm going to write them on your heart. I'm going to place them on your mind. And I'm going to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit who ministers and effects this new covenant in your heart and in your life. Now, folks, this answers the feeling, I can't measure up. This is the answer to that Awful feeling, I can't measure up. And folks, that is what characterized the Old Covenant. Anybody under the Old Covenant never could measure up. I mean, he saw God's righteousness. He saw God's laws. He knew the way that he was supposed to take. But there was no motivation. There was no internal power. So he was continually failing, 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 never measuring up. 
But Christ takes care of that in the new covenant by again providing that internal motivation and power we need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the second fundamental promise. The new covenant is based on a close relationship instead of one that is fearful and distant. The new covenant is based on a close relationship with God instead of one that is fearful and distant. The second promise is the latter part of verse 10. He says, And I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And this answers the feeling of what? I'm afraid of God. And folks, if you read the old covenant, they were afraid of God. Because they never measured up, God always seemed distant. And He seemed distant because they were aware of their sin and their guilt that stood between them and God. But in the new covenant, Jesus takes care of that. Because now in the new covenant, our hearts have become what? His home. Our hearts have become His tabernacle. He has taken up residence in our hearts through the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, who we've already noticed, puts His laws into our minds, writes His laws upon our hearts to provide that motivation and that power to please Him. Look at the third promise. The new covenant provides confidence and assurance instead of insecurity and uncertainty. The third promise is found in verse 11. It says, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. So this answers the feeling of what? I never know where I stand with God. And that was sort of the feeling under the old covenant. Because you never measured up. Because you were fearful of God and He always seemed distant. You never know where you stood with God. I mean, is He going to come down heavy and blow me away in His wrath? Or, you know, am I going to know His kindness and His blessing? There was always that insecurity. There was all, always that lack of confidence. But in the new covenant, God gives a sweet assurance. He gives us confidence that we can know where we stand with God. That, yes, we do have a great and merciful high priest who sits on the throne to ensure that everything is working for our, together for our good, to give grace and mercy in our time of need, that we are now met with a disposition of love, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of what? The finished work of Christ, what He accomplished for us. When He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And then look at the fourth promise, which is foundational to the previous three. It emphasizes, the new covenant emphasizes forgiveness and mercy instead of failure and sin. The new covenant emphasizes forgiveness and mercy instead of failure and sin. Look at verse 12. For I will be... Notice notice these I wills. It's God taking the initiative. He's making these promises, these guarantees. He says, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. See, this answers the feeling, I am guilty and condemned. 
And in the new covenant, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you are guilty and condemned. But Jesus comes. He offers himself on Calvary's cross. While he's on that cross, your guilt is placed on him. He took the punishment that you deserved so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's removed the stain of guilt and sin. And as a result, God says, I will remember your sins no more. Now, what does that mean? Of course, God is omniscient. It doesn't mean that He doesn't have the ability to recall your sin or failure. But when He says, I will remember your sin no more, it's in the sense, I'm never again going to allow your sin to come between me and you. Because Jesus took care of that sin. And so, you never have to be frightened that I'm going to meet you with my wrath. You can always know that I'm going to meet you with my love. Now, as I always share with you, does that mean he's going to let you off? No, because he does love you. I mean, is a loving parent going to just let his child off when the child just willfully disobeys? No. But the parent disciplines out of a motive of what? Love. That parent is thinking of the future of that child. The, the, the goal is correction. The goal is the benefit of that child. So now as a result of the new covenant and what Jesus did, we never need fear God. There is no condemnation. There is no longer wrath for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We're met by love and love alone. And yes, that love, when necessary, can get tough. And it can discipline and it can chastise. But it's always for our good. Always for our benefit. Therefore, what? Because he's taken care of my sin. I know where I stand with God. I need not be afraid of God. And even if I don't measure up, what? Jesus has already measured up for me. And I'm clothed in His righteousness. And in Christ, God receives me as His beloved. Now look at that fifth point. The new covenant is salvation in every tense of the word. Now you see what I mean by it? past tense. God has acted in the past, in Christ, to win our forgiveness. Again, that latter part of verse 12, I will remember their sins no more. So we look back to the crucifixion and his burial on resurrection when he died for our sins and then buried them and rose again to offer forgiveness. But also the new covenant has a present tense salvation to it. Right now, if you're a believer, you have an intimate relationship with God. In verse 10 11 says, I will be their God and all shall know me. So there's the past tense, what God did in Christ on the cross but present tense, he's in my heart. I have an intimate, personal relationship with him. And then there's a future tense as well. There's progressive tr transformation until final glorification. The middle of verse 10 reads, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. See, what this is saying is, here I am as a believer. 
Now, I do not know what the rest of this day is going to hold. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold or the next day. If God gives me a tomorrow and the next day. And you don't either. None of us know the future, right? And so, every new step, we step into something unexpected. Sometimes we come to a crossroads and we have to make a decision. Sometimes we, we, we are confronted with temptation. Sometimes we're confronted with deep, uh, dark, uh, difficult adversity. Sometimes it's a relational issue that, that we're, we've walked into. And what this is saying is I walk, as I take each new step, no matter what circumstance I face, no matter what relationship I'm in, no matter what decision I have to make, no matter what challenge I'm confronted with, Jesus says, just at the right moment, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put in your mind and in your heart the truth that you need to give you the guidance that you need. And I'm not only going to provide that truth and that guidance, but with the truth, with the guidance, I'm going to provide the empowerment to step out and obey. Isn't that wonderful? So the new covenant covers everything, past, present, and future. Now, as we close, let me just sum up all this by drawing your attention uh, to the fact that there are two names that are given to Christ in chapter 8. Two names. Uh, You'll notice in verse 2, he's called the minister of the sanctuary. The minister of the sanctuary. And in verse 6, he's called the mediator of a better covenant. Now listen very, very carefully. Because this just really sums up everything that we just said. As minister of the sanctuary, Jesus' ministry is to bring us, to bring man into God's presence so we can experience God's blessing. It's just that simple. As minister of the sanctuary, his job, his ministry, is, is to bring us into God's presence and discover all the blessings that God has for us. As mediator of the new covenant, Jesus' ministry is to prepare us to enter God's presence, to meet a holy God. See, you need, it's so important to understand, there has to be harmony between the God of the sanctuary and the worshiper who comes to worship Him. The Bible is very clear on this point. Without holiness, no man will see God. Only the pure in heart will see God. Without holiness, no man will see God. So, he's minister of the sanctuary, and his job is to get Andy Merritt into God's presence to experience God's blessing. But there's an issue here. He's got to make me prepared. He's got to make me fit to come into the presence of a holy God. There has to be harmony, again, between the God in the sanctuary that I go to worship and myself. And that's what he accomplishes through mediating the new covenant and these promises. And there are And to accomplish that, there's two fundamental things he has to do. And just think about this. And it makes all of this very, very simple. Two fundamental things he has to do in conversion to bring this about. First, he has to take the thought of our sin out of God's heart. Right? He has to take the thought of our sin out of God's heart. 
And did he do that through the new covenant? Yes, by his, the sacrifice of his life on Calvary's cross. And as a result of that, God says what? I will remember their sins no more. But the second thing he has to do, he has to take the love of sin out of our hearts and replace it with a love for God. And he also accomplishes that in the new covenant. That is what happens in a true conversion. When a person puts his faith in Jesus Christ. It's not only that the thought of my sin is taken out of God's heart. He'll remember my sins no more. But he takes the love of sin out of my heart. And he writes his laws. He writes them on my mind. He writes them on my heart. Providing that motivation and and energy. Now this doesn't mean that a Christian never fails. We still struggle in the flesh. But I guarantee one thing. A true authentic believer can no longer enjoy sin. Now, there's those passing pleasures of sin, but there's always going to be what? That gnawing conviction. Why? Because God has taken up residence in your heart. Because God has literally changed your heart. And therefore, for a Christian to walk in sin is inconsistent with all that God has done in his life. And that's why a Christian is miserable to turn away from God and to walk in sin. And that's why we read what we read in Romans 7. There's an example of a believer who's walking in sin. He says, I want to do what's good. You know, I want to do what's right. But he says, you know, at times I find this flesh coming to this flesh, and, and he's miserable. But he finds, of course, victory as he learns to rely upon God who has taken up residence in his life and to follow that word and that truth and, and that energy and motivation that he gives. So my question that I leave you with as we conclude is, have you ever had such an encounter with God? Do you have the assurance that the thought of your sin has been taken out of God's heart through the work of Christ? And do you have the confidence that the love of sin has been taken out of your heart, replaced with a sincere love for Christ, and you desire to honor and follow Him? Father, thank You for this magnificent truth in Hebrews 8 concerning the new covenant. Lord, thank You that Jesus mediated that new covenant that's built upon such better promises. I thank You through the new covenant that our sin has literally been removed Uh, from the heart of God. And we are met with a disposition of love. Thank you through the mediation of the new covenant. Uh, You've taken up residence in our hearts. uh, That you've changed us. That you've written your laws upon our minds and upon our hearts. That you provide internal motivation and power uh, to follow you. So Lord, help us to see as Christians... What is ours? Lord, help us to see our inheritance and by faith to appropriate it and not let it go to waste. So, Lord, thank you for such infinite love that you've met us in our sin and our failure and you've provided every provision that pertains into life and godliness. 
For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.